Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CE curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Okay, let's get on to our session. So we're gonna talk about the overview of the new ERSESC guideline recommendations. Um, so uh, if you guys haven't seen this, this is the document that came out published in 2022. It's a very long document, a little over hundred pages, but it sort of summarizes um, all you want to know and probably more than maybe you ever want to know about current thinking about pulmonary hypertension. It's a nice document. There's a lot of nice um, information in there. So um, uh, a good reference to have to go back and look through. What we really want to highlight today in the next 15 minutes is we're going to review the background of pulmonary hypertension and pulmonary arterial hypertension, and then we're going to highlight the major updates that really came out uh, in these guidelines. So to start with, to kind of set the stage, I guess, for the day today, as we know, pulmonary hypertension really just means high pressure in the lung. And when we think about pulmonary hypertension in general, right, this is the umbrella term that encompasses all different types of pulmonary hypertension. So pH in general, just high pressure in the lung. And really the more important question then to ask when we think about the diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension is what type, or another way to think about it is where in the cardiopulmonary circuit in the connection between the heart and the lungs, where is the abnormality or the disease state that's driving that high pressure in the lung? Because it's this initial question that we think about that really drives the, the questions about management and prognosis in patients. So we can see in this schematic the, the picture of the RV into the pulmonary artery, the pulmonary venous bed into the left side of the heart, and all the different areas where we could see it. And in the guidelines, um, this the general classification scheme for pulmonary hypertension has generally stayed the same, right? We think about this disease as being categorized into five major groups that we think group one or pulmonary arterial hypertension, we think of as primarily a vascular disease of the lung that affects the pre-capillary bed. Group two pulmonary hypertension is the type of pulmonary hypertension that's driven by left-sided heart disease, so pulmonary venous hypertension. Group three pulmonary hypertension is when we think about parenchymal lung disease, patients with underlying COPD, emphysema, either with or without hypoxia, but where the, the pH is really driven by destruction of the, the uh, parenchymal lung or uh, of the lung parenchyma. Group four, as we'll highlight in the next setting, is chronic thromboembolic disease, um, diseases that are, are characterized by unresolved pulmonary embolism or chronic uh, clotting in the lung. And then group five is the multifactorial mechanisms, the pH that can be driven by lots of, of different causes. In the guidelines, there have been a couple minor changes or um, as far as the way we classify this. So there were changes as far as uh, the way we classified reactivity and non-reactivity in patients with underlying um, primary pulmonary hypertension, and then some changes to the, the classification of group three pH. But ultimately, the overall uh, way we characterize and think about this disease stays the same. And each of these groups is really linked to underlying pathologic changes in the lung. Probably the major change that came out of the ESC ERS guidelines is we changed the definition or the, the, the level at which we define pulmonary hypertension. So this is a disease that is defined by hemodynamics. <laughs> Classically, we've defined pulmonary hypertension as a mean pulmonary pressure greater than 25. This um, highlights the need for a right heart catheterization and making the diagnosis. But with the new guidelines, the threshold for calling someone as having pulmonary hypertension was lowered from 20 
uh, from 25 to 20 millimeters of mercury. We might say, well, this seems like a pretty minor change. Why was this made? Well, if you think the, um, when you talk to people that were involved in the original definition of pH 25 was somewhat of a random number that was chosen just to make sure we're capturing everyone. And now with years of, uh, epidemiologic data being collected in this, we know that, um, the normal mean pulmonary pressure is 14 plus or minus three. So the ESC ERS guidelines decided to lower the threshold to 20 because 20 represents two standard deviations above what would be considered the population mean for pulmonary hypertension. So we'll talk in the, when Val gets up to, um, for her talk, we'll talk about what this, some implications of the drop in the mean pulmonary pressure to 20 as part of the definition. Um, but that's one of the major changes in the guidelines. And we'll see here with the, this, we've changed also the threshold for pulmonary vascular resistance as uh, part of the definition here. And again, this is based on epidemiologic data, um, mainly data out of the Veterans Hospital, big study that showed that a cutoff of a pulmonary vascular resistance of around two wood units is associated with an increased mortality risk in, in again, population-based studies. So based on this information and the, this, the information around where the normal mean is with the standard deviation, these are the definitions of, of pulmonary hypertension now in the guidelines. So pH is just a mean pulmonary pressure greater than 20. Pre-capillary pulmonary hypertension or the, the group one disease is a mean greater than 20 with a wedge less than 15 and a PVR greater than two wood units. Isolated post-capillary pulmonary hypertension are those patients with left-sided heart disease where the mean is greater than 20, the wedge is elevated, the PVR is low, and then combined pre- and post-capillary pH, we see the wedge elevated with an elevated PVR. And then also new to the guidelines or back in the guidelines now is an attempt to define exercise-induced pulmonary hypertension. And we can see this is now being defined as a mean PAP to a cardiac output slope uh, between rest and exercise of greater than three. Um, the other big thing that was highlighted in the ESCRS, ESCRS guidelines that I liked is they um, pushed towards uh, a push towards earlier detection. So some algorithms trying to help people identify pH um, earlier. And we can, this is one of the good things about the guidelines. If you look into this, there are nice flow diagrams for people to be able to go through this. I highlight here one of the, the recommendations of if you have a high suspicion for pulmonary arterial hypertension or CTEF, the recommendation is to fast track that referral to a pH center that can offer all available therapies for pH. Um, and then I want to highlight as well, another thing that they talk about that I thought they did a really good job on in the SCRS guidelines is the way we screen for pH, really giving more information about how we can fully utilize echocardiogram as a screening tool for pulmonary hypertension. I think gone are the days where we should look at an echocardiogram and just say, oh, the pulmonary artery systolic pressure is elevated. This person has pH. We really want to use this tool to the um, best of our ability because ultimately when we think about pulmonary hypertension of the right ventricle, we're really thinking about um, a disease that is being driven by increased right ventricular afterload and that these chronically elevated right ventricular afterload can lead to these changes between um, RV and PA, uh, uh, this lead to RV and PA uncoupling. And then um, the echocardiogram, really, this is a nice um, figure from the guidelines that show not just looking at the, the pressure estimate, but really looking at the structure and functional changes in the echocardiogram that we can look at to really guide us to say, when should we be concerned about this disease? When or what else can we look at to tell us information about the right side of the heart, the complete hemodynamic picture of the patient? 
And then finally, um, we'll talk about the uh, PVR thresholds and implications for clinical practice, thinking about close follow-up in these patients, how will this affect treatment, making sure we're watching these patients with the lower threshold of pulmonary hypertension and making sure we're looking and treating for risk factors associated with it. So in summary for this, we're gonna look at the mean PAP is greater than 20, and then PAH being defined as the mean greater than 20, a wedge or a PVR greater than two. And then the last thing I wanna highlight in these guidelines is the recommendations they made around treatment algorithms for pulmonary hypertension. And really there's a couple things in here that were interesting. We're looking at uh, the treatment of patients with group one pulmonary arterial hypertension, one of the things that they split that was led to a little bit of conversation or controversy around this that we'll talk about is stratifying patients between those who have comor comorbid cardiovascular disease and those without um, cardiopulmonary comorbidities. We'll talk more about that in a second. Um, we, uh, they, in these guidelines also highlight the need to use risk assessment in patients with PH. This is one of the really exciting things that's been in the world of pulmonary hypertension in the last couple of years. A lot of publications out of pulmonary hypertension registries, looking at all of the parameters that we followed in patients over the years that tell us about how they're doing and trying to put into an objective measurement, how we can classify the risk of a patient. And now they've codified this into the, the um, treatment guidelines in the, uh, to, to use these risk assessment tools to help us make decisions about treatment. So in this, we're highlighting using the, at the first step after diagnosis, the three strata risk assessment where we're looking at low, intermediate, or high risk patients based off of their parameters like the BNP test, the walk test, the echocardiographic findings. Um, it doesn't really matter which risk assessment tool you use, whether it's the reveal, reveal light, or ESC ERS guidelines. But in this treatment algorithm, we want to use the three strata rule at the new diagnosis. And if you have a patient that has is low or intermediate risk based on these risk assessment, you're going to use or think about upfront combination therapy is the recommendation here. And in high risk patients, you're going to think about combination therapy with the addition of a prostacycline or prostacycline analog. And this is really based on data also um, from large clinical trials. So this is um, data from the Ambition trial that looked at combination therapy versus monotherapy and showed improvement in patients that were treated with upfront combination therapy. Should have clicked and it would have told me the answer to that question. PD5 plus an ERA uh, versus PD5 or ERA alone. And then in the high risk uh, population, we're really thinking about triple combination therapy for maximizing um, their treatment. And then again, a little bit of controversial area you know, related to the guidelines is thinking about patients that have cardiopulmonary comorbidities and the ESC ERS guidelines making the recommendation to consider oral monotherapy for these patients. This is again, based on a public publication that Dr. McLaughlin put out that I'm sure she's gonna talk about, but it, um, we looked at the ambition trial and then looked at subgroups in that trial that um, had comorbid conditions um, and check, looked at the um, long-term outcomes of these patients. So there seemed to be inpatients that had comorbid conditions, lower benefit with upfront combination therapy compared to the, the overall treat patient population in that trial. And there were increased rates of discontinuation. But as we'll talk about in the next, next talk, um, 
if you look at this, right, there was a large benefit in the entire cohort receiving upfront combination therapy. And even in patients in this um, subgroup analysis of the com with comorbid conditions, those patients still had a benefit with upfront combination therapy. It just wasn't as um, robust as a, the overall population. And then the last couple slides here, as we move into patients who have already been treated um, and then their regular follow-up, these guidelines um, highlight using now a four strata um, risk assessment for follow-up. This now further delineates patients into low, intermediate, low risk, intermediate, high risk, or high risk to help make further treatment decisions. This is again, based on who functional class, walk test, and BNP. And this is um, data showing that the four strata can further delineate sort of long-term outcomes in patients or survival. So we can use those to help us guide whether or not we make treatment decisions to escalate therapy. So again, now the conclusions for this, we're gonna talk about overall pH is a disease entity where we define this as a mean greater than 20. We see in this table, the, the definitions of um, pre and post capillary pH we think about PAH as a progressive primary precapillary vasculopathy. Echo is a good screening tool. Right heart cath is diagnostic. And then when we think about the treatment approach, we really want to think about instituting risk assessment in these patients to help us make dis treatment decisions. Um, and then these treatment decisions around dual combination therapy for low to intermediate risk patients and triple therapy, considering triple therapy with the inclusion of a prostacycline for those who are high risk which again is, plays into the discussion of that, um, the diagnostic algorithm where we think about early referral of patients that we think are at high risk or that we're worried about so that all treatment options are available to those patients. So I'm gonna stop there. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Global Learning Collaborative, GLC, and Total CME LLC, and is part of our Minute CE curriculum. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.